Welcome to Towards Health, an H1 podcast. I'm Elizabeth Fennell, the Director of Marketing for H1. We're lucky to have with us today Brad Hightower and Darshan Kokani, Dr. Darshan Kokani, um, discussing the year in pharma. That's a really big topic. Um, we have a lot of things to cover in a short amount of time, so we're going to dig right in. Um, first of all, can you both tell me a little bit about yourselves? Brad, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, you know, thanks so much for having me on, Elizabeth. Appreciate that. I'm Brad Hightower. Uh, I've essentially spent my career working at the clinical trial site level uh, for the last 15 years, uh, kind of working across uh, you know, different types of site models, everywhere from academia to nonprofit. Uh, and about five years ago, I started my own uh, sort of integrated site network uh, in which you know we provide research infrastructure to physicians, uh, basically at no cost, so that you know, we can enable more physicians to participate in research. Um, my, my name is Darshan Uncle Carney. Um, I am, uh, by training, I'm a pharmacist. I'm an attorney. Uh, I also have a master's in quality assurance regulatory affairs. Uh, I'm principal attorney of the Kulkarni Law Firm. So I help um, individuals and companies who are in the life sciences, everything from drug companies, device companies, and the service providers, including sites and CROs and sponsors themselves. Um, I also, uh, depending on the, the type of role, I might actually be helping in promotional compliance as well and medical affairs as well, because I understand, Elizabeth, that that is part of the audience. Um, I was recently uh, director of compliance for Fact Am I. Um, I teach at uh, teach FDA regulatory law at Drexel University School of Law. I have my own podcast, Darshan Talks, which focuses on life sciences considerations, including research, marketing, and advertising as well. Um, I also have written multiple book chapters and, uh, and articles relating to the life sciences, including some on clinical research, um, on marketing, on compliance, et cetera. But I'm sure there's more and we can get into that if necessary. Awesome. You both make me feel very uh, unaccomplished, but I'm so glad to have you here. <laughs> um, so when you think about 2022, we're, we've been coming out of a pandemic and maybe going into Another one, what do you think was the biggest aha moment this past year for pharma or life sciences, each to your respective areas of expertise? Brad, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think, and, you know, you know, keep in mind my perspective is fairly narrow sure. in terms of just clinical trials. But yep. um, I think that, you know, we, a very sort of popular refrain has been, you know, not going back or never going back after this pandemic uh, in terms of you know, decentralizing trials. I'm sure we'll touch some more on, on that a little bit. But frankly, I think what we've seen this last year is uh, a big sort of movement back. Uh, we're seeing more on-site visits. We're seeing less uh, use of some of these decentralized trial technologies. Uh, not, maybe not technologies, but let's say services or methods. Um, so I think, I don't know if you want to call that an aha moment, but I think it was maybe uh, something a little bit unexpected in, a, in an environment where there was such a push. And I think that that's been a really interesting thing to see over, over this last year. Great. Darshan? Um, well, I, I guess I'm going to break it up into three major buckets, depending on, um, depending on your audience. I think um, I'm going to echo exactly what Brad said, which is I think you're starting to see um, more issues uh, associated with innovation. So you're, you're going to see, uh, you have been seeing uh, everything from privacy issues of uh, how are 
companies going to work with patients directly. I think you're seeing a lot more um, patient centricity pop up, uh, but patient centricity is taking on different names. Um, and one of those names, as, as Brad mentioned a few seconds ago, is decentralized clinical trials, because they are considered to be depending on what actually lands up being decentralized clinical trials. Because I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced yet that I even know what that means yet. But to the extent I understand it, um, the, I think that it is a very patient-centric movement, the idea of using more, maybe more remote tools. Um, and, and maybe we're seeing, we're seeing new players come into the space. So whether you talk about Walgreens, you talk about uh, CVS, all saying that we want to be in the space. Still unclear in what capacity, because you're seeing them being in the, in the role of um, recruitment. But I'm not convinced that that's their final form. To, to quote Dragon Ball Z, I don't think that's their final form. <laughs> Um, the, um, I really wish I watched Dragon Ball Z. I'd I'd probably have more to add there. Um, I think from a, um, promotional perspective, I think you're, you're going to see more and more stuff come out around consistent with the label issues because there Mm -hmm. is, um, some considerations on what that actually means because the FDA has put out literally about five years ago at this point, um, a 67 page memo saying, we don't know what to do with, uh, with off-label because we've lost six court cases and we, we don't really know what to do there. Um, add on to that the fact that um, they then put out in that same 67-page memo, they put out, twenty I think it's like 23 different options of what they could do. And then they kind of ended with, we still don't know what to do. Um, so that's very typical of the FDA going, you guys figure it out, we'll, we'll see where we are. Um, <laughs> I think you're seeing more, more direct-to-consumer uh, pushes so I'm seeing more and more social media stuff coming out. Uh, but I think companies are going to start asking better questions. I mean, we're in the middle of what I'm calling, and I say this as a pretty significant investor in some of these companies, or at least my personal significance, if you will. But uh, in the tech sector, you're seeing a meltdown. You're getting job, you're seeing significant job losses right now. Um, so you're, you're seeing people going, I want to see an ROI on the investments I'm making. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not typical for pharma. Um, and, and Brad, I know is going to completely disagree with me in some senses because he's going, I get this fair market value analysis continuously in every single day. So I don't know what you're talking about, but, uh, <laughs> but that, that's a different discussion. And, and I think the, the last piece, and I'm seeing this more and more with medical affairs where you're seeing more and more tech, tech enablement. So you're seeing chatbots and the like, and, um, I think the future, uh, and I don't think we've gotten to this question to the extent you're going to ask this question, but um, the, the future, I think, is going to be more technology inter- interspersed that, that's not just in one space and not in the others. Um, that people are talking about chatbots and medical affairs. Well, those chatbots would be great if they came into clinical research because Brad and I have had uh, numerous podcast interviews where he's going, I wish I had more information. And if those chatbots could be loaded to answer some of those questions that Brad has, it would make his life a whole lot easier. And so you touched on something, and I think that's the data aggregation piece and the patient data. And I think it almost seems like pharma is where the primary care market was maybe a year and a half ago with Walgreens and CVS getting involved in decentralized trials. So where do you see kind of data or tech innovation having the greatest impact on either drug development or clinical trials? So I, I think that um, 
there, there are two different pieces. I think you're, you're asking two separate questions there. The first question you're asking is what is the role of data um, and, and how is that going to play, play a bigger role? I think uh, I deal with a lot of sponsors, for example. One of the big questions that they are asking is, do I own the data associated with the patients I'm working with? And can I give that data back to patients? And they don't know how to because they're technically the patients are blinded. So they don't know how to make that happen. The second element that's coming out of that is uh, patient privacy is becoming a bigger and bigger issue because uh, you start talking about the EMA. You're talking about, well, technically, these subjects are supposed to be anonymized and you've got to put this data out there uh, because of clinical trial transparency rules. Um, but turns out it's really easy to identify someone if you really wanted to. So how do you connect those two pieces? Um, I, I think um, another element is how are new players going to affect this? And I'm going to be a little bit um, more provocative uh, and say that I, th I think that um, a lot of the new players coming in are coming in without a clear plan, uh, or at least a clear plan that's been... Um, that, that's been sort of told to the rest of the world. Because what I'm seeing is you're seeing, I say this as a pharmacist, a pharmacist who's worked at some of these large pharmacies. Um, and I can tell you that right now, pharmacists are overworked. They're all saying, I don't, I'd rather not work and rather not have a job than, than go there and do what I was doing before. So you're telling me that those pharmacists are now going to work and do all these new things that they bluntly aren't qualified to do. They've never been trained on, on clinical research. So, um, so we're, we're talking about this space that requires all new training, all new equipment, um, and a whole new skill set that needs to be updated on a routine basis. And there's no clear plan on how they see an ROI on, on any of it. Um, and to me, whether you're talking about Walgreens, you're talking about CVS, you're talking about Walmart, um, I don't have a clear idea of what that is and, and how they're going to come in and actually change the world. You, you'd add on a, an Amazon um, and you see things like Haven, which has failed miserably before. But right. um, you don't really know, do they have a clear plan either? It's sort of this cool area to be in, except yeah. and Brad will tell you it's a grind. And, and I'm not sure people are ready for the grind of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. So, Brad? Yeah, I mean, I know we kind of got away from your original question there, but I do. Okay. I find the whole entrance of retail to be just incredibly uh, fascinating to me because, and I've had conversations with some of these people, you know, at conferences or even in Zoom calls, whatever the case may be. And I can't figure out what the hell they're doing to be perfectly honest. And I feel like they start to give me the investor pitch and I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I do this every yeah. day. So, you know, tell me, or can you tell me like, what exactly is your plan here? What, what do you plan to do? And, you know, to Darshan's point, I, that's not, I don't think that's clear. And I'm not sure that it's even clear to them at this point. Um, but again, you know, it's hot, hot place to be. There's a lot of cool acronyms, there's a lot of money getting thrown around. So, you know, I guess they'll, they'll, they, they'll figure something out, I'm, I'm sure of it, but I'm not sure that that's quite clear yet. I'm, I'm going to challenge you on that, Brad. I'm not sure they'll figure something out. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those situations where they're going to go, we tried, this wasn't a good place, and I'll move out. Eventually, I think there'll be a, a new plan that comes out of this, but I think we're going to see a lot of failures before you see the success. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly. And I think to go back to the, the sort of data part of your question, too, like I feel like they 
look, there's a great opportunity here, I think, for these groups. They have a ton of data, no question. They have more right. data than I, as a site, could even right. imagine in all of my dreams. So, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't see some, you know, community partnerships between community sites or site networks along with these these retail who have the data work with us who know how to actually make things happen on the ground it seems like there's a good space there but i haven't heard that really being bandied about much and i'll, I'll tell you the answer to that as well brad because i tell you working as a pharmacist i never know what my patient's in for i have a i have a general sense that this xyz drug can be used for one of 15 different conditions one of which is on label 14 of which are off label and that's completely legitimate. So I know that I have 15,000 patients who get XYZ drugs. What I do not have clarity on is what actual disease states you have. So I don't understand from a clinical research standpoint, someone comes in and says, can you tell me how many patients you have, uh, how many patients uh, have XYZ disease? I couldn't tell you that. I don't know how to, because even if I'm getting something like gabapentin, which one might argue is very clearly a anti-seizure medication. Yeah, except it's also used for diabetic neuropathy. It's also used for headaches. I mean, there are a bunch of different other reasons. So you have data, but the data is not clear. It's sort of this, unless you connect it to someone's EHR system, it's not as great as one would think. So I think companies are starting to discover that and that's just not been communicated, but I'm being more provocative than I probably should be. I've had these conversations behind closed doors and my podcast guests usually, after I turn off the podcast, will have this conversation with me, but I have nothing yeah. to lose. And now I think it definitely puts a different burden on the pharmacist. Um, but I wonder if some of these retail pharmacies having um, physical locations and communities uh, where maybe there's not access to trials. And I know that's been a big push this year. The FDA released the, the guidelines on trial diversity. Um, curious what your thoughts are. It's kind of a segue into, you know, everyone talks about making the trials more diverse. How does that really play out? You want to go, Brad? Yeah. yeah I mean, it, frankly, you know, at a site level, it's a weird position to be in because I feel like um, the opportunities exist for us to go into communities. Well, not necessarily to go in, but make relationships with right. communities where we know patients are with doctors that are trusted. And uh, I think that is not being leveraged enough. But as sites, you know, look, it's no secret that sites aren't necessarily balling out with all the money in the world to go market to different communities and, and spend a lot of time. And not that they have to, but it's, you know, a lot of times you're just trying to enroll the patients that are in front of you. But I think the key potentially could be through sites and existing site networks who, again, know how to do these things. But again, in some ways, we're sort of, uh, you know, handcuffed because there's not been any real investment from, you know, outside. And I don't know that there should be. It's hard to say. I think that's another discussion, perhaps. But if we really want to get it done, it's going to take, I think, collaboration uh, across the board. And I just don't know that We've seen that. We're having a lot of conversations about it, but I haven't seen a lot of practical change other than sponsors saying, we need to be what's diverse. the diversity or, you know, what's your demographics of yeah. your site? And I'm like, well, I can't, you know, <laughs> it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm going to repeat back the question because I have a terrible memory, Elizabeth. So I apologize. But okay. I think the question you asked is, um, do you think that these new players are going to change the diversity profile of your um, clinical trials. Is that a fair 
Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and I think there's more attention on the diversity because the FDA released the guidelines. So yeah, that, that's a fair question. Okay. So I think my response to that would be, I think at this moment, um, both the FDA quite bluntly and sponsors are paying lip service to the idea of diversity. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants diversity as long as it doesn't take more effort to do it. Um, and, and the question is, well, it's a new idea. It's a new program. It's going to take more effort. It's going to take more money. And it may slow down progress while we get figure these things out. Any CRO that's, that's coming point. out there that's saying, oh, we can get you a more diverse set of patients. I don't know how you're going to do that. Because if you could do that before, why didn't you do it before? Um, right. That has always been something that you want in a clinical trial. Um, I, I think sites are, as, as Brad said a few seconds ago, I have what I have. I, I can't change the diversity. If, if I'm in a primarily Hispanic region, that's the population I have. And you probably should be talking to that population because that might not be the population you have in your trial. On the other hand, um, if you are in rural Kansas, you have a primarily white population. That's the population you have. You can't change that population because suddenly there's this goal for diversity. Having said that, I do think diversity comes in different forms. I just did um, an interview with someone around trans health and the inclusion of trans individuals. Maybe your inclusion exclusion uh, criteria need to evolve. So if you want diversity, maybe it doesn't start by saying men and women. There are different, there are more ways to express that. And did you really lose anything by saying individuals over, uh, uh, over the age of whatever? So that type of inclusive language would be very useful because otherwise you're stuck with um, with sort of criterion that may cause you to reject people that should have been included. And, and quite bluntly, you might even be able to get, depending on the type of study you do and, uh, and like, you might be able to get a rare disease state voucher out of it. And that's worth more than a lot of different, it's, it's worth a lot of money, but people aren't going down that path. People aren't thinking about these issues. Sorry, I'm, I'm being a little yeah. provocative. No, no, that's okay. I've recently heard um, the term social determinants has been thrown around healthcare oh, yeah. a lot, but I've recently heard it in relation to the decentralized trials. I was curious what your, either of yours opinion was on that. If it, if it, understanding those data points for patients that we're trying to enroll makes a difference in where we try to enroll trials or if we do decentralized trials. You want to go, Brad? You want me to go first? Oh, please go ahead. So again, I feel like social determinants of health are one of those. It's it's sort of like that term of diversity, which is well, actually, it's be, it's more closer to uh, decentralized clinical trials than to diversity. Diversity is aspirational, but at least I know what it means. Decentralized right. clinical trials, I don't actually even know what it means. I know there's a definition out there, and I know people like Craig Lipton have done a wonderful job trying to spread the word around it, but I'm still unclear what it actually means. Having said that, um, with something like social determinants of health. It's one of those things that's very amorphous and people are still doing research on what the actual social determinants of health are. It's everything from poverty poverty to zip codes to everything else. I mean, everything affects who you are, whether it's food deserts, whether it's pharmacy access. I mean, all this plays a role. So the question then becomes, what are you actually going to control for? If you say we're going to consider social determinants of health, okay. Uh, where, where do you start? Which determinants are you going to control for? Right. So that'd be my take. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I have much to add uh, really. Again, I, I find it 
in a lot of ways to his point just to sort of nebulous as decentralized trials like what 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 are we talking about here i get the general idea but to what degree again to what degree do you control and why you know that again site level that's kind of stuff's not really that clear to us yeah it sort of becomes when does it become aspirational and when does it come become boots on the ground to actually be able to use it um so we are almost at wrap up time maybe we can do a part two of this because i love this discussion um so we'll wrap up with what are you most excited about for 2023 when it comes to either innovations or your space or developments in drug therapies? Oh, I'm, I'm really excited about social determinants of health and decentralized clinical trials. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited about how technology is going to change everything we do. Uh, it's going to solve everything next year, January 1. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I know we've been, uh, and I've, I've been often critical of these, all of these things, but I do still, again, find them extremely uh, exciting to watch kind of play out in real time as somebody who's who is sort of the boots on the ground, you know, having to having to actually do the work, you know, that's that's being <laughs> being decided for us, you know, at these these higher these higher levels. So I'm looking forward to seeing how I guess what fails and what works at this point, because I think we're still in that sort of early uh, uncertain phase. So I think it is very exciting. Now I am also incredibly fearful of all the extra time energy, uh, you know, to what degree some of these things fail and what effect that may have, but I still find it to be, you know, again, just, just extremely exciting looking forward. Great. Darshan, anything to close out? No, I, I, I think I, I, I let wisdom speak and Brad was wise. <laughs> Well, we thank you both for taking the time to be on. And if you both want to give a plug for your podcast, that would be awesome. Brad, what's the name of yours? Uh, it's Note to File Podcast. And uh, check it out at notetofilepodcast.com. It's on every platform there is at this point. So Awesome. Darshan? Uh, my podcast is called Darshan Talks. I'm actually primarily on YouTube. So um, I probably should do more podcasting. I took it off the podcast channels. But I primarily do YouTube. Awesome. Well, this is Towards Health, an H1 podcast, and we thank our guests, Brad Hightower and Dr. Dershan Karkani, and we'll see you next time. Bye.